It is a, a milestone in how we think about defense and attack. Well, in the middle of all of the political and cultural shockwaves that the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia has created, it seems to me that on uh, sort of a second look, something actually really important is happening in Ukraine, not in terms of what's actually happening, but how things are happening. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Whittle here with Steve Green and Scott Ott. This is your right angle on the man-portable apocalypse that Russia is facing in the Ukraine. Guys, there's a there's a military uh, theory, really, more than anything. It's called the revolutionary revolution in military affairs, and the theory is that occasionally you will dis discover either a tactic, a doctrine, a weapon system, something that is not an incremental improvement over existing weapon systems. It is something that simply completely changes how wars are fought. For example, we went through a long period, hundreds of 150 years plus of just putting bigger and bigger guns on ships. And we got these giant battleships and then along comes the aircraft carrier. And now you're fighting a war in the Pacific where the ships never even see each other. The battleship is finished. It's over. This thing that used to be the foundation of our naval policy is now obsolete. We are in a whole new world. What it see, what seems to be clearly happening in Ukraine right now is that is that the overwhelming, overwhelming Russian superiority in air power, attack aircraft, attack helicopters, that kind of thing, and on the ground, their overwhelming advantage in the number and quality of their armored units are being negated by two weapons that are actually very similar. They're called man-portable weapons. One of them is a man-pad anti-air system like the Stinger missile, now a guy with a tube walking through the bushes can stop enemy air forces. It's happening all over the place in Ukraine. We're seeing it all the time. This footage of a helicopter being hit is just shocking and terrible, but this is the new reality. And similarly, if there's one weapon system to define the Ukraine conflict, it's got to be the Javelin missile or the, the British equivalent, the NLAWS. It is a man-portable anti-tank weapon that hits tanks not on the front where they're heavily armored, not even on the sides or the rear where they're somewhat weaker armor, but pops right down on them from the top where there's essentially no armor at all. And once again, one soldier with a tube has stopped the entire weapons system. Steve, if if I can have five guys in, in the bushes, each one of them armed with javelins, and their chance of stopping five enemy T-90 brand new armored Soviet, uh, Russian tanks rather, and their chance of habits. killing those tanks, yeah, slip of the tongue. But, but basically, if five infantrymen have as good a chance or better, actually better when you get down to the numbers, of stopping five Russian tanks than they would if they were in five Ukrainian tanks, then the entire idea of armored forces suddenly becomes about as obsolete as the battleship. At least theoretically, you could make the case if you've got enough of these anti-armor weapons that an armored personnel carrier, which used to protect troops going into battle, now is just a convenient way to put 12 guys together and kill them all at once. Yeah, uh, the battleship is such a... Uh Huge example, uh, and the reason isn't just 
that the uh, that the aircraft carrier made them obsolete. I mean, the day after Midway, the battleship was 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 done. Actually, the day after Pearl Harbor, the battleship was done. Our battleship row was you know damaged or sunk, and we had to make do with what we had, and that was aircraft carriers. Our our whole pre World War II doctrine was just done. Obsolete. Um, but the other thing about battleships is. They were never once used as envisioned and as uh, doctrine said they should be. It almost happened at uh, at Jutland, Battle Jutland, of Jutland yeah. in, in World War One. But even then, it never came together the way battleship proponents said it would. With these perfect orders of battle and your destroyers and torpedo boots racing out and your your uh, the uh, battle cruisers doing this, it never worked out that way. War is just too messy for these perfect lines of battle like the battleship proponents. Uh, said it would happen. Anyway, went off on a tangent there. You know, uh, ever since the late 1930s, um, the the armored division, the mechanized division, has been the uh, center of organization for, for land forces. The Germans yes. came up with it before World War II, and they did a very good job with it until everybody else caught on to, to, to how this sort of armored maneuver warfare works. And we came along, did a very good job of it. Uh, the Israelis, very good at this stuff. The Russians keep trying. Mm, we haven't seen it yet. Um, but it just so happens that last week I wrote a very scholarly paper. I think I found it at rearcleardefense.com. Uh, Great website if you're into this sort of thing. It was a, a British paper uh, advocating for the essential dissolution of the armored division. The mechanized division is, is the primary part of maneuver warfare and instead advocated for the creation of what they call the missile division, where it would be centered around very long range fires, probably up to about 500 kilometers, and tanks would have a very small role, mostly to protect the missile battalions at the at the core of this division. And then you would have very fast moving, I, I think I'm remembering this correctly, a very fast moving light armored cavalry type units to, to move into the enemy rear after the missiles had, had done their jobs. And a lot of infantry on the ground wired in, networked together to do exactly what, what you're talking about, Bill. It's, uh, it's really kind of brilliant. And it's, it's probably the future. The only other thing I'd add is part of what we're seeing, at least in the skies over Ukraine, is a, a real failure on the part of Russian aerospace. Um, the United States Air Force and lately the Navy and Marines went big into stealth back in the 1970s. Um, the F-117 Nighthawk was developed in the 70s. It uh, came into service secretly in 1981. Uh, since then, we've come up with a B-2 Spirit Heavy Bomber, the uh, the F-22 Raptor Air Superiority Fighter, the F-35 Multi-Role Fighter, and we've got the B-21 Raider. Uh, our next heavy bomber is coming along apparently pretty nicely through the development process. Uh, no big delays, no big cost overruns. And one of the reasons is that's now our fifth generation of stealth jet that we're developing with the B-21 Raider. We have deployed four different stealth platforms with a fifth on the way. Russia, on the other hand, has deployed four stealth jets, period. Period. They built four Su-57 stealth fighters, and no one's actually sure how very stealthy they are. And the whole purpose of stealth is to reduce the chances of getting shot down by a missile. That's why we went big. And 
I have to say that if we had F-35s over the skies of Ukraine, or if Russia, I should say, had F-35s over the skies of Ukraine, we would not be having half of this conversation right now. Um, that's a big, expensive fail on their part. I'm not entirely sure that's the case anymore. Um, it, it may not be. We, we, haven't, and, and we haven't had to so have that battle yet, thank the goodness. First thing, the first thing that the Russians did, the very first thing that the Russians did was they launched um, strikes against the Ukrainian air defense systems. And this is how we have always thought about air forces in terms of modern warfare, that there are air defense installations that have giant rotating radars, and then you've got missiles that can hit targets at a long range, a surface-to-air missile, the SAM, all of this stuff. Now, if that's your primary problem, you develop a missile like the HARM missile, which rides down the radar beam that the defensive missile is putting out, yeah. the defensive installation, and you blow it up. And the first images to come out of Ukraine that I can remember were images of burned out radar dishes and burned out surface to air missile installations on the part of the Ukrainians. Great. So far, so good. That's how everything is supposed to go. But Russia's not losing six, seven aircraft a day. And when I say aircraft, I mean everything from low-flying helicopters to, to Aleutian transports, which were loaded with paratroopers and two of them. They lost two, two IL-76s in one day, filled with this. some of their best troops went down, not because of, a, of an air defense battery, but because a guy had a Stinger missile or something very much like that, a man-portable missile, man-pad, man-portable air, air defense weapon. Scott, the theory I'm trying to kind of just develop here is if you look at this and scale it up just a little bit, you may actually be witnessing now in Ukraine the end of the tank and the end of the attack aircraft as we understand them. It if, if the entire history of warfare of the 20th century was protecting infantrymen and armoring them up. Now it's beginning to seem that if every infantryman can kill armor with a javelin missile, then you want to do precisely the opposite. You want to send these guys in on foot, disperse them as widely as you possibly can. Yeah. It reminds me of a book I read a couple of years ago about the Battle of the Somme. And this was in World War I, and they were talking about the early British tanks. And uh, from the description of the book, and I'm, I'm not like you guys, I do not have the kind of... Uh, warfare and historical knowledge that you have. So, But I did read this book. And from the description of it, it, it almost sounded like they had made a metal wall that could roll very slowly and awkwardly across the battlefield and guys could hide behind it <laughs> while, know, while yeah. it was rolling across the battlefield. And, um, and it's almost like the introduction of Javelin and Stinger missiles has taken us back to the tank's utility being almost that good. Um, but, but not really, uh, you know, you, you might want to walk some good distance behind it. So yes. that when the explosion <laughs> happens, you don't catch out, the shrapnel out of the blast radius. Exactly. So, um, yeah, and it, it really is a revolution in warfare and it is hard for, uh, especially people who have, uh, observed or, uh, military officials who have fought previous wars to be able to think through now what happens. Like if you're used to massing mechanized force versus masses of mechanized force, 
How do you deal with something where it's a distributed, scattered, isolated individuals that could be behind every bush and every rock? Um, You know, there's no more lobster backs in a line who are queuing up in the middle of the flat plain to say, "Okay, you guys shoot first and then we'll volley in return. You know, it's war has become um, a lot of kind of jab and move and jab and move. And um, and frankly, at least at this point, unless it unless it uh, means that world leaders are going to throw up their hands in frustration and say, well, I guess we'll just have to use the nukes against civilian targets. But I think overall, this may actually reduce battlefield casualties or at least reduce the impetus for people to say, hey, let's throw masses of troops and, and equipment against somebody. It, it makes it um, the force multiplier of the Javelin missile dissuades the aggressor. And, and I'm hoping that that redounds to the benefit of those who are aggressed against. That's exactly my point. Yeah. If you, ever since World War II, if you plan to invade somebody, invade a country, you would have an extremely powerful armored spearhead, and that armor would go in there, smash everything out of the way. You'd have air support taking out things slightly ahead of the tanks. And if these things have become obsolete because of the weapon systems, then we are entering an entirely new world, which I personally think is a safer world because you can have all of the tanks you want to. But if it turns out that every single infantryman that you're about to roll over with your tanks has the ability to kill your tank, then you, 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 the entire equation is, is gone to me as a, as a military amateur military historian, I'm, I'm looking at how long the Ukrainians have survived against what, on paper prior to the actual invasion was an overwhelming advantage in Russian aircraft and armor. Overwhelming. Should have been over in three or four days. But the first things we see, aside from the the static old school radar installations, surface air missile installations being taken out, that's all going according to the old script. But then this juggernaut just got stopped. And it got stopped because a guy with a tube on his shoulder can, can take out a tank. In the, in the history of firearms, since we've invented gunpowder, we've gone from lines of guys standing shoulder to shoulder, reloading and firing at guys who are 10 yards away because anything beyond that, the, the weapons are no longer accurate, right? So in order to get hits, you have to have a large volume of fire. That means a lot of people. And then as we get the rifled bullet, then we can have accuracy to longer range. We don't need as many people and we don't need them quite as closely packed together. And then when you've got everybody talking to airstrikes and all the rest of it, you can have much fewer people. What I'm trying to say is over the last century or two or three, technology has made the infantrymen more and more lethal against other infantrymen. But we may now be looking at the point now where an infantryman has developed through technology sufficient lethality to be able to be effective against enemy armor. And that is a revolution in military affairs. And if that same infantryman on his other shoulder with the other strap is able to bring down an attack jet, which previously would have made mincemeat out of the entire position, then he is essentially on some level eliminated the enemy's air force. I think we're going to look at, 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 at what's happening in the Ukraine, and, and, and I think we are going to realize that it is a, a milestone 
in how we think about defense and attack. Because the one thing that's interesting about this is both the man-portable anti-aircraft system and the man-portable anti-tank system, are they are both defensive weapons. Yeah. It's practically impossible to imagine employing them offensively. You can't have a bunch of guys running into somebody else's territory with their anti-missile <laughs> tanks and, 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 and anti-aircraft missiles because they're going to get gunned down with machine guns. These are defensive weapons. And if you can, dis if you can disperse the country's defense out so that you're no longer having to hit individual targets, that it's literally every bush, every tree is, is the end of your tank. Then, as Scott suggested, the entire idea of invasion as we understood it becomes obsolete. There's always a revolution in military affairs, and then there is a countermeasure and another countermeasure and so on and so on and so on. But nothing ever countermeasured gunpowder. We didn't have arrows that could defeat better guns. We just had to start thinking about things differently. And not only do I think that explains what's going on in Ukraine now, I think, I think looking at it going forward, hundreds or thousands of individual infantrymen who can stop airplanes and tanks means that invading a country becomes essentially impossible. I really begin to think that that is the case, at least in terms of how we understood it before. Maybe they'll come in with sharp sticks and pointy rocks. I don't know about that, but that may be where we're headed. For Steve Green and Scott Ott, I'm Bill Woodle. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll see you next week on Right In.